As we hiked out of the canyon that day, my wife and daughter warily scanned the rocks for signs of a really big cat. I was lagging behind taking photographs, assuring them that if the lion appeared, that I would do my best to chase him away after I got a photograph. <laughs> They were strangely unenthusiastic about my plan. Actually, I wasn't that worried about it because this sort of thing happens in the desert all the time. Especially, particularly at times of drought. The drier the weather, the lower the animals have to descend to find water. They have no desire to confront human beings, but if they do not find water, they will die. So what that sign indicated more than anything else was desperation. Desperate behavior begins to seem plausible, or risky behavior is, becomes plausible if you're desperate enough. And it's this link between desperation and risk-taking that intrigues me about the passage that was read in Mark chapter 5. This is a story about desperate people. People who are flat out of options. So in their desperation, they each take a risk that ends up changing their lives. Interestingly, they are different from one another in virtually every way. They represent the proverbial other side of the tracks to one another. One comes from what we would have to assume to be the upper echelons of that first century society. He's a leader of a local synagogue named Jairus. He's one of the few people named in Mark's Gospel. He's likely a man of some economic means. He clearly has good standing in the community. But he also has a sick child, and disease is no respecter of socioeconomic status. So Jairus, this religious VIP, finds himself in a desperate situation, and that desperation leads him to this controversial rabbi named Jesus. There are widely divergent views about Jesus in the religious Community. And as synagogue leader, Jairus would surely know that he will likely raise the eyebrows of some of the Jewish hierarchy should he be seen courting Jesus. What are his options? His daughter is dying, and he's desperate. So casting caution to the wind, this respectable Jewish leader finds his way to Jesus, falls at his feet, begging him to come to his home and heal his sick child. This is, the act, this is the act of a desperate man who knows that Jesus is his last resort. Jairus' relief must be palpable as Jesus agrees to accompany him to his home. He is hopeful that his risk has been rewarded, and he begins to lead Jesus through the streets, toward his home, and to his dying child. 
This character could not be more unlike Jairus. She, yes, she's a woman, unnamed, belongs anonymously to the crowd. She is without status. She is without anyone to defend her. She has no one to lobby her case as Jairus does for his daughter. Mark, who is well known for his brevity, goes into extraordinary detail about this woman. She's had a flow of blood for 12 years. She's suffered much under the care of many physicians. She's spent all of her means without having benefit from, benefited from it, and in fact, she has grown worse. She is a person who has been condemned to the absolute margins of society due to her illness. Because of her physical condition, according to the medical code, she should be perpetually segregated. She is the epitome of a social pariah. But here she is taking a huge risk being among the crowd. They can easily turn on her. But she is not content to simply be one of the crowd. She determines that she will touch this rabbi so that she might be healed. One commentator notes that she appears to have an almost magical view of Jesus. But evidently her simple faith overrules her lack of theology. A not so subtle reminder to all of us who value theology that God looks at the heart and not at the head. So in her desperation, she doubles down on her risky behavior, strategically placing herself amidst the crowd and reaches out to touch the teacher as he passes by. Touching Jesus is her last resort. Mark says that immediately her issue of blood was dried up and she perceived in her body that she was cured. And then he says that immediately Jesus perceived that power had gone out from him. From the absolute bottom of the social scale, this woman intrudes upon an important mission on behalf of the daughter of someone at the top of the social scale. And now she herself becomes the daughter in this narrative. For Jesus says to her, My daughter, your faith has made you whole. Jesus is interacting here in a way that breaks all of the rules and expectations of the culture of that day, while responding appropriately to the request of a socially important man Jesus allows himself to be delayed, fatally it appears, by a woman who resides at the absolute bottom of the social scale. Now clearly Jesus' compassion here towards one of society's untouchables is meant to say something deeply significant regarding the nature of the kingdom that he preaches and models. But the story isn't over. Jairus. I can't help but wonder about poor Jairus. Standing there in agony, watching this unexpected delay of his last best hope for saving the life of his daughter. Does he resent this woman's uninvited intrusion into his own personal emergency? 
are told is that soon after this spontaneous healing in the street, that word comes that it's too late. The little girl has died. Jairus's big risk is swinging for the fences. Has all been for naught. Jesus senses the emotional deflation of the moment and tells the devastated father, don't be afraid. I can't imagine what went through the mind of Jairus as they continued the journey to his house. But when they arrive, everything appears as if death has indeed won the day. The cultural tradition of wailing mourners is in full progress. Jesus appears almost perplexed by all of this commotion, unable to grasp why people would be mourning Whereas he tells the crowd, the little girl is not dead, she's asleep. The mourners qu quickly become skeptics. They know that death always wins. Indeed, death is undefeated. But Jesus bounces all of the skeptics out of the house and takes the parents and three of his disciples into the room and says in Aramaic, little girl, arise. And this desperate father sees his risk of last resort rewarded as he witnesses firsthand the awakening of his daughter. Any way you look at it, this is a classic gospel story. But what are we to make of it today here? I think that this text is telling us something significant about God. And literally, this story centers around Jesus. God isn't even mentioned. But Jesus is demonstrating here what God is like. In fact, a major theme in Mark's gospel is to help us see that to speak about God and Jesus is in one important respect, a distinction without a difference. God, as it happens, is responsive to human desperation. You ever notice how desperate people get Jesus' attention? Not just here, throughout the Gospels. It, it's the blind guy who won't shut up when he hears that Jesus is nearby. It's the Canaanite woman who refuses to be ignored. It's the leprous man, insistent on making his dream of healing known to Jesus. It's the penitent woman ignoring the possibility of being further humiliated who washes Jesus' feet with her tears. Even in Jesus' teachings, it's the widow lady who endlessly pesters the judge until she gets justice. It's the neighbor pounding on the door at midnight seeking bread for an unexpected guest. What all this tells us, I think, is this, that God has a special place in his heart for human beings who grasp their utter helplessness and who fall on their faces before him, asking him to do what only he can do. Jesus, oh, excuse me, Jairus and this unnamed woman are privy here to the acts of God. Jesus is being himself, is God's self, if you will. 
little wonder that Jesus said, I only do what I see my Father doing. What Jesus does here is a continuation of what God has been doing for human beings from the beginning of history. This story underscores the truth that with God, the last shall indeed be first. That God is no respecter of persons. But it also shows us that God's grace and mercy are not zero-sum qualities. This woman's healing does not mean that Jairus goes home empty-handed. No, there is grace, there is mercy enough for everyone. But this text is also telling us something about humankind. In short, that we are broken and we are needy. We are often cast into desperate situations without any recourse except to throw ourselves upon the mercies of our Father in heaven. In my early days as Houghton pastor, I had several important mentors to me. One day I was talking to one of them, and in the course of our conversation, he looked at me and said, Walters, everybody has a burden. And he was right. It's part of the human condition. Every one of us has a hidden place of hurt or anxiety that can potentially paint us into a cul-de-sac of desperation. Mark is being graphically honest here in chapter 5 about the human predicament. These are two people from opposite sides of the track, but both find themselves in situations beyond their capacity to fix. I've been there. You've been there. Some of you may be there right now. It's part of what it means to be human. Unfortunately, in our winner and loser culture, confessing one's brokenness is considered bad form. So we devise elaborate ways to disguise our needs. And as you would realize that exacts a huge price on us in virtually every aspect of our lives. That sad element of reality brings a question to us, I think, and it's this. What might this text say to us as a church, as a community of faith? I think this story reminds us that we need to cultivate an atmosphere where people can honestly own and confess their hurts and brokenness. Where they can come and find true sanctuary in times of desperation. It is cliche but true that the church is a hospital for people in the need of healing. It is not a health spa pandering to the whims of the spiritually elite. This story should give us pause, I think, about the current state of the church in many respects, particularly with regard to desperate people who are out of options. Is the church today a place that they would legitimately consider turning to for help? And if not, why? What do desperate people see when they look at the modern church? At the great risk of being misunderstood, 
I fear that some of what is done under the name of Christian worship today has taken on the flavor of contrived celebration. Don't get me wrong, we have much to celebrate. But what about the complicated lives of so many people? People who are hurting, people who are desperate, people who have run out of options. What does the gospel have to say to those folk? Is there room in modern Christian worship for them? I visited a while back a large Southern California megachurch. I won't tell you which one it was. I'll just say that the whole time I was there, I kept thinking of that old cowboy song, I'm Back in the Saddle Again. Uh, <laughs> let me assure you, this is a very fine church that does wonderful things for the kingdom of God. But I sat there and I listened that day to all of the songs that were being done, and without exception, they all centered around happiness and joy. And I remember looking around that great congregation, hundreds of people, and, and wondering to myself, does everyone here actually relate to that? I'm troubled by the loss of lament in modern Christian worship. Some of what passes today for worship is little more than engineered enthusiasm. As one of my Australian friends put it, I'm tired of singing all those I want to have a beer with Jesus songs. Now you may need some context with Aussie culture to fully appreciate that. This is why the Psalms are such a necessary part of Christian worship. They keep us honest. Take for example Psalm 130. Out of the depths I cry to you, Lord. Lord, hear my voice. Lord, let your ears be attentive to my cry for mercy. On any given Sunday, there are people sitting next to us in church, or perhaps even in seminary chapel, who find themselves in the deep end of the pool, who cannot likely praise their way out of the depths. As Neil Plantinga put it, there's a broken heart sitting in every pew. They desperately need to find the sanctuary of God's compassion and mercy. As Bonhoeffer urged us in life together, the community of faith needs to be a fellowship of sinners. Places of transparent honesty and true sanctuary. The church must literally keep it real. So what might this text say to us here today personally. I think that Mark is demonstrating here the truth that the gospel willingly goes into the darkness of human experience. That's powerfully underscored by the healing of the demon-possessed man that immediately precedes our text. The gospel does not carefully pick and choose its candidates like some elitist Ivy League school of the spirit. To our great relief, this story underscores that there are times when those with great burdens can find their way to Jesus to touch his garments, to plead with him to come into their homes and heal their families. 
I don't know very many of you here today at all, but I know that seminary, like all periods of life, has its moments of high anxiety and, yes, even desperation. Perhaps not to the extent of Jairus and our anonymous woman, but it is among us nonetheless. Whether it's worry about finances, worrying about relationships of various kind and significance, whether it's just the frustration of trying once more to help your family understand why you're throwing your life away on a call to the ministry. Desperation lurks close by, yes, even in the holy city. Desperation is known to all of us at some point in life. That's the sentiment we see in Psalm 130. The psalmist says, I I wait for the Lord. My, My whole being waits, and in his word I put my hope. I wait for the Lord more than the ones who wait for the morning, more than the ones who wait for the morning. I never fully grasp that line about watchmen waiting for the morning until I read a story by a Vietnam veteran who talked about being a 19-year-old kid on sentry duty at the perimeter of the camp one night, recounting the sheer terror of standing watch knowing that danger lurked out there somewhere and how his eyes played tricks on him, waiting, hoping, longing with all of his heart for daylight to come so that he could believe that he was safe. That's desperation. Been there? I know that it's very possible that right now some of you have life as it were by the tail. Enjoy it. It won't always be that way. But some of you don't. As a longtime pastor, I well know that gatherings like this have a lot more desperate people in them than what appearances might suggest. Those folks inhabit the crowds anonymously, like the woman in our story. And it just could be that today they will find the faith to reach out and touch the Savior. Perhaps you think it's a bit odd to to talk about desperation at Christmas time. I know it's on the heels of Black Friday and there's a huge party going on. But it's not Christmas, it's Advent. It's a time for God's people, especially those of us who have come to understand that Jesus is in fact our last resort. It is a time for us to be watching for him, desperately hoping, waiting for God to bring deliverance through his promised Savior. Looking around today at our violent world, at our troubled nation, at our families and neighbors, and even at our own complicated situations, it's not hard to believe that desperation resides among us. 
Psalm 130 ends with these words, O Israel, hope in the Lord. For with the Lord there is steadfast love, and with him is great power to redeem. To all of us anxious waiters, rejoice. Rejoice, Emmanuel shall come to thee, O Israel. Even so, come Lord Jesus. Amen.